Kia ora, and welcome to another special edition of the New Zealand Property Market Podcast, brought to you by CoreLogic, produced by Agents TV, recording on the 13th of May, 2020. I'm Head of Research, Mick Goodall, and today I'm joined by a very special guest, independent economist, Tony Alexander. Tony, thanks so much for coming on for a chat. Yep, no worries, Nick. Given the um, current appetite, you know, we are seeing a lot of information from information and guidance. I know you must be crazy busy, so it's uh, great to be able to nab a few minutes of your time. How are things going with you? Anyway, how has the seven-week lockdown been for you? Yeah, well, this is the last day of it, basically. I remember right at the start, I was saying to people, anticipate four to eight weeks of it, rather than just, you know, the, the four weeks for level four. And so um, seven weeks, no great surprise. And uh, for me, I've basically, I guess, been working on my business. Uh, I wrote early on that people should uh, take the opportunity to work on their business as opposed to in it. So I took my own advice and uh, now I've been beavering away and putting out a lot of material, trying to help people understand what's been happening out there. And as a result, I've seen my uh, subscriber base uh, increase by almost five times over this period of time because people seem to want a voice out there saying something other than this is the worst downturn since the Great Depression. Go and kill yourself. You know, that seemed to be the message coming out from a lot of other people there. So now I've had some pretty good feedback on what I've been doing. So for me, um, the lockdown has been fairly, uh, I guess, uh, useful in terms of growing my particular uh, little business and being in the countryside, going out for a walk each morning. Um, I guess it's uh, completely different from some poor beggar who may have been locked in an apartment in the centre of a city for seven weeks. That'd be no good. <laughs> no, too right. Yeah, you've got to wonder if anyone had to do that, what they're going to be thinking um, for future because they're going to guard against having to do that again and have to go and buy a property somewhere else or what are they going to be thinking? So fair point. So you mentioned sort of going out for walks and things. Tell us a bit more about, you know, who is actually in your bubble, who was in your bubble, of course, and, uh, you know, how that's gone for you. Yeah, yeah, my wife there and also uh, 80% of the children. So that's four of them, uh, four of the five. The eldest boy, he's down in Christchurch, but the other four are here back from university and back from school, um, etc. Um, and I mean, we've lived here for sort of a couple of decades or, or so. Everyone's used to being in this environment over an extended period of times. We're not people for uh, going out to restaurants and things all the, all the time. We're on a 10-acre block in the countryside. And so, really, uh, it hasn't made too great a level of difference to the lives of most of us. Just, I guess, the interruption on the schooling and obviously on the university side uh, as well. So, you know, I've been ready for a, a greater pandemic than this for about 18 years. Uh, uh, about two decades ago, I postulated a scenario of smallpox and what would you do then? well, you'd lock yourself up for as long as possible. So I've had food stores and supplies ready for that sort of thing since uh, shortly after the uh, terrorist attacks, 9-11. And so this sort of lockdown, where, uh, yep, it's pandemic, but you get to go to the supermarket every week. Luxury, basically. <laughs> you are well ahead of the curve, mate. I'm, I'm, I never remember reading that stuff from you, but um, yeah, certainly you've been well prepared for this one, so good on you. Is there... um? Any one thing in particular you've missed that you're looking forward to, you know, once we get to level two and, and going and doing now that we're going to be out of it? Yeah, you see, a part of me wants to say the physical presentations, because I love being in front of people presenting to a group of 100 or 500 or whatever. Um, and I will feel that way again in a few months' time. But right at the moment, I'm so used to doing webinars and enjoying webinars, uh, I want to keep doing webinars, quite frankly. Uh, but I, I, eventually, I want to get back into the uh, into the travelling around again and, and meeting people face-to-face. -face. Now, the thing I think I've missed the most is not being able to go to uh, Friday night fish and chips. 
is uh, tends to be a highlight of the week. Get those in, uh, get some bottles of Coke in, etc. Veg out, watch uh, recorded Gold Rush or uh, Aussie Gold Hunters or some poor losers like that on uh, TV shouting at the screen so the kids can hear, you know, get a real job. Um, so hopefully it's sinking into them. So, yeah, that's what I miss, fish and chips. Fair play. I think you actually sowed the seed. I, I did mention on our podcast earlier in the week that, of course, we tried this record last week and we had a few connection issues, but you mentioned the fish and chips thing and we actually ended up getting fish and chips on uh, Sunday for Mother's Day. So I think you sowed the seed for me last week and, and it was bloody good. I've got to give you, give you that, so fair play. And you... um. You mentioned there about you know getting out and speaking to people. Of course, for 25 years, you were chief economist at BNZ. You've gone independent now and continued on with that, um, that line of your business. Can you talk more about that transition from being with the BNZ to now being independent and what's that, what that's looked like for you and, and how you've enjoyed that? Yeah, yeah, no, well, I've definitely enjoyed it. The, the stress level, I guess, is lower. Um, not so much in terms of, you know, there was an overbearing presence or anything. When I was with the BNZ, I, I, I said to people, look, I've got 98% freedom in, in what I can say. Uh, but the 2% matters quite quite a lot. Um, and now I've got 100% freedom in what I can say. But of course, it's only a, a small change, quite frankly. I guess it's allowed me to exercise the entrepreneurial spirit uh, a bit more. And hence, I've been able to sort of shape the weekly publication that I've been doing. I've got some changes coming uh, down the track for that. I've uh, set up a monthly survey there of real estate agents around the country. Uh, set up an, another one also for people's spending plans, try and give some retailers some insight into where things are going to go. Um, for much of my time at the BNZ, I worked from home anyway. So doing that now is actually no change, quite frankly. And the level of demand for presentations uh, is about the same outside the bank as in the bank. So still very busy doing that, although obviously that stopped in March and won't start up again for a, for a, for a little while, I guess, until we can get groupings of over 10 um, inside a room. Maybe if I do it in a picture theatre, uh, then we could have 100 in, in there as, as an option. Good point. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, gone, it's gone fairly well so far. I mean, part of the benefit, I talk about entrepreneurial activities, etc. Yeah, but after sort of three decades in the banking sector, I don't feel the, the need to be making lots of money to service a mortgage or that sort of uh, thing. I've got that luxury, which your average business person, I guess, doesn't have where they have to make decent money to put food on the table at the end of the week. Um, I, I don't face that pressure. So, Basically, I'm having fun uh, informing people, which I guess is what I've always wanted to be doing since uh, uh, I guess got into the field uh, back in the 80s. No, good on you. And I think, yeah, the way you talk about informing people, and I think it's the style you have as well around always providing the evidence to why you think something. So people can go, I agree or disagree with him, but at least you can see how you got to that point to, to let them make the decision for themselves. So I think it's a big part of it is bringing that data in. And one thing I've noted recently is probably your increase in um, using sentiment and surveying people as well. So, you know, that's obviously been a big part of where you've shifted some of your focus over the last six, seven weeks that we've gone through COVID-19 as people search for, tell us what's happening now, because economic data is so slow. So how has the sort of sentiment gone for you in terms of your surveys of the different subscribers you've got? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, for the moment, people are uncertain what to think. And so I survey people and they say, I want to find out what other people are thinking, but everybody's un uncertain. So it's a question of trying to look through, I guess, to the anecdotes people submit that, I guess, seem to make sense. And what the, I guess the greatest sense coming forward there, when I look at, say, the spending plans survey, um, people saying, yep, they're going to be increasing their spending in the in the areas of hospitality, eating out. Well, 
that's exactly what I've said. I'm going to eat out by getting my fish and chips and bringing them home to eat, I suppose, is one version um, of that. But people also, they've had time in their houses. They want to do renovations. So a large number of people are saying, going to do home renovations. So good opportunity for um, contract builders, et cetera, carpenters to get involved in that sort of thing. And gardening, people want to uh, fix up their gardens. So maybe good activity for landscape gardeners, et cetera, in the garden centres travel so there is potential for um, domestic tourism to pick up i'm not ecstatic on that because when you're in a recession and your unemployment rate is going to you know seven and a half or eight percent or something like that quite clearly people are going to rein in their spending to a great degree but it'll help out a little bit for the uh, tourism locations um, around uh, in new zealand so i found the spending plans uh, uh, survey uh, to be fairly good and yeah, from the real estate agents i guess what i've found there just their the anecdotal comments and asking them to say up or down in response to a few questions. The insight I've gained there is that there are still many first home buyers and investors in the market. And they're in the market because the interest rates are so low. Uh, the LVRs, eventually the uh, banks will pass on the, the removal of the LVRs. And because listings is, have been so short all around the country, there's a lot of frustrated buyers out there been looking and nothing to look at. And so they're hoping that the listings are going to come forward. So then the question becomes, will things be stressed enough so all these listings will be dumped onto the market? And the evidence so far is most definitely not. If people don't have to move, they're not moving. Um, and those people who are, who are thinking about it, uh, well, they're going to do it later on down the track. So we're not going to get a lot of information until maybe three or six months from now, quite, quite, quite frankly. And you asked about sentiment. I guess I focus on sentiment and what people are seeing and, and feeling, et cetera, out there, because the actual numbers, they're just going to be all over the place like we have never, ever seen before. At the same time, as we're going to be getting numbers showing a collapse in spending, we'll be getting other high frequency numbers showing it's starting to recover. At the same time as we're getting numbers before the lockdown showing the economy was quite strong late last year and early this year. And then later on, as we've got numbers, many of them all going upwards, we'll get data for this period and we'll see truly how much the economy shrank, you know, during this quarter. So I'm really not actually looking much at the numbers, quite frankly, uh, at all. They're going to be all over the place for the entirety of this year. Yeah, no, really good point. I mean, we've sort of said the same thing, especially with sales volume, sales values. We have to have a few high frequency, which tells about market activity, like the appraisals written by um, agents and also the mortgage lending activity from the banks. And those are the two signs of activity that we're tracking. And we're certainly seeing that lift back up. But the one thing we don't know from that is you don't know why are people listing? Why are people getting their property appraised? Is it because they have to sell? Or is it just because they were going to anyway? Or they're going to maybe raise some cash, but they're not unlikely to see the price drop. So it's not really going to have too much of an influence. And yeah, so that's the things you can't necessarily get behind the numbers. And that's where I think you're right, talking to people. And um, you know, one of the things I've been focusing on in our webinars is by saying to them, I'll speak for 20 minutes, half an hour, but then I want to hear some stories about what you guys are seeing and hearing and experiencing and um, open the Q&A both ways so I get to get something back out of it because you know I can sit here behind the desk and look at numbers all I like but um, hearing the real experiences people is such a big part of it too. Yep yep I, I find that particularly useful that's a good idea and it also challenges uh, me uh, so one reason I like doing presentations is because uh, you get the Q&A at the end and I remember years ago somebody said so we'll just get you to do a presentation uh, but we won't have any Q&A and I said you just try it. Uh, I like to be challenged in front of the whiteboard or whatever. I've found over the years, sometimes my best thinking 
has been under the pressure with somebody asking me a question. And uh, I'll see things from a different angle. And that's what I get and why I value the interactions uh, through the way I'm working now. People are emailing me questions and making me think about something. And if I decide I've got something sensible to say, not only do I reply to them, I also go throw it into my uh, weekly publication as well. And uh, more people can read it there. So, yeah, I, I love the interaction. Absolutely. I think we're always at risk of getting locked in a little echo chamber and hearing what we want to hear. So finding opportunities to challenge your current thinking is, uh, is always a good thing. Totally agree. Hey, I wanted to um, jump into some more banking stuff, I suppose, obviously with the strong and long experience of BNZ. And one of the things was the role of term deposits, especially from a funding side of things. So would a drop in term deposits be a major barrier to lenders continuing to get mortgages done? Really looking at how the banks are funded because they can't give out money if they don't have any coming in. Okay, yeah, no, no problem at all. The uh, Reserve Bank, uh, or many weeks ago, cut the bank's uh, minimum uh, core funding requirement, and that core funding requirement means banks have had to have 75% of their funding being sticky, so it wouldn't leave in a hurry. That's where you get financial crises, when all the money suddenly goes out the door or out of a country um, in a hurry. They've cut that down to 50%. And uh, as it is, anyway, um, banks in New Zealand are getting about 70% of their deposits to me, uh, domestically, um, from the retail sort of base there. The other 30% is from the wholesale base, domestic um, and overseas. And uh, writing in their monetary policy statement you know, just this afternoon, the Reserve Bank noting that banks really aren't under any funding pressures uh, are there at all. And so, no, it's for the banks, it's not uh, availability of money for themselves. That is a constraint on their willingness to lend. It's simply the fact that they see uh, high uncertainty out there. They can't price the risk. Any actuarial person, insurer knows this. You need to be able to price the risk. Once you can price it, you can set a premium and then you can sell your products. So banks need, first of all, to get a better feel for how this is panning out. Then they can sort of work out what the risk is and then they can better set the interest rates on business loans, home loans, um, obviously, um, and the sectors they're willing to take some more exposure to and ones they want to cut back on. But on top of that, there is another overlay um, in that we do have new information now of a vulnerability in some sectors, tourism, aviation, um, accommodation, hospitality, that we never considered existed before. So this will lead to a permanent reduction in the willingness of banks around the world to lend into those sectors. Um, and that's obviously going to spin out in terms of some businesses are no longer going to be able to afford to keep running because the cost of their finance will be higher on average and new money for new operators won't be there as it was in the past as well. That reinforces the importance of uh, investable money. If you're, you've got money to invest, you know, you're a valuable commodity and maybe you, you can be backing a good business uh, person out there with an idea in hospitality. But yeah, for the bankers, initially, absolutely run off their feet, 70-hour weeks, working at weekends, processing deferral applications, etc. Uh, and now it's more waiting to see how things settle down and then they will do what they've always done and what they want to do and that is lend money. And they'll definitely lend the money again. They'll pass on the uh, LVR uh, uh, wiping out. Uh, I was going to say decreases, but they're not decreased. The LVRs are gone. Uh, they'll eventually pass these on. And that's partly why the first home buyers are out there in the market. Um, they're anticipating uh, having better buying ability uh, pretty soon down the track with banks more willing to lend. But that still could be three to six months away. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because the banks, 
as you say, they want to be lending. That's how they make their money. You know, we have seen really competitive rates have now dropped below 3% now, which to me shows they are opening up a little bit. They've, they've got their house in order. They're starting to open up a little bit. But of course, they're going to focus on, you know, what we call the good money. It's going to be those potential good borrowers. And so it's not going to be easy for everybody, but those that do have solid income, including future income, um, should still be able to get those, those mortgages from the bank. And as you say, at a low interest rate. And you did touch on there the monetary policy statement where what an hour and a half since then I you know cut short your interpret your time to interpret that probably but um, looking at this afternoon of course the Reserve Bank have kept the OCR the official cash rate at zero point two five percent they've increased the quantitative easing program is there anything else you sort of took from that and what is your kind of longer term I suppose interest outlook interest rate outlook for where things are likely to head to. Okay, first of all, on the interest rate side, people should assume these rates remain where they are now or a bit lower for the next three to five years. I think that's the end of story. Um, you've got the Reserve Bank of Australia lending banks money fixed three years at 0.25% if they want it. That's the time period they're targeting. I think we'll see, if not that same facility, but that same sort of approach here uh, in New Zealand. So these interest rates not only sort of staying where they are now, they're going to go lower because one of the um, features of the monetary policy statement, uh, the, the, uh, the, the summary of it on the Wetbank's website, uh, they stuck the boot into the banks, basically. They basically said, we expected uh, by now there would have been more pass-through to your lending rates from the reduction in your funding costs. And I, I didn't write down the wording, but it was something like, it would be in your best interests to act on this fairly soon. Now, that's like something an authoritarian state might say to another country that was upsetting it at the moment. So <laughs> definitely um, a pretty strong uh, thing there. The other thing I, th I suppose to mention here, relevance from the MPS, because people might scroll through it, scroll through it, and then you go to the search function in your, in your PDF and you'll put in house prices, and then eventually you'll find the Reserve Bank has predicted that uh, over this year, house prices on average in New Zealand will fall by 9%. Now, I haven't got to see if they've got a prediction for beyond that, but that's their forecast. So you might go 9%. A, that's within the range most people are talking about, okay, of 5 to 10%. B, hang on, we've got a point of comparison. Here we are with the Reserve Bank and a monetary policy statement uh, in a crisis, and they've made a prediction. They've been here before during the global financial crisis. So in December 2008, in their monetary policy statement, what did our Reserve Bank say then for house prices? Well, back in December 2008, they predicted that average house prices in New Zealand would fall by 16% from the 2007 peak right through to the end of 2010 with downside risk. Well, actually, at their worst, they fell by 11% right in that month when they were physically writing their MPS. That's when the house prices in New Zealand were at their lowest point. Um, and they'd only gone down about 11, not the 16. And uh, so they ended up being out in their prediction then by, I don't know, 6 7% or something like, like that. And so we just have to be cognizant that for any forecasters at the moment, I know this from experience of three decades, you can get caught up too much in the most recent momentum and you end up biasing your outlook towards the cautionary side of the momentum continuing. So the upshot of all that, I guess, of their previous behavior, of knowledge of how we forecast, and then the surveys I'm doing and what they're saying, you know, I'm, I'm not seeing that prices are going to fall by 9%. I think on average it will be less, and then they'll be moving up again over 2021, but nothing major. Okay, no major increases. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and, I, and I agree in terms of picking up on the Reserve Bank, talking about passing through those rates from the banks. 
but from a from the downward side of the property market, you know, that's probably about similar to us, that five to ten. I suppose the big concern I'm starting to feel at the moment is, you know, what does really happen in five to six months? Of course, in the short term, there's so much support from the government, the Reserve Bank, the um, banks themselves in terms of mortgage deferrals and interest-only periods. You know, what risk, though, of actually, when we do get five or six months, if people haven't got their jobs back, we've seen a massive increase in job seeker um, benefits happening at the moment. You know, if we don't see the lift that we need to, that actually people will be forced to sell and maybe take those lower prices in, you know, September, October time. Like, I do feel there's a bit more risk there. Yeah, well, certainly there is the risk, I guess, if we don't see that things are starting to improve by then. Now, we won't see that in any official unemployment numbers. It'll have to be job seeker you know, uh, numbers on that, that benefit, for instance. But that's also where I think this recession is a bit different from previous ones that we've experienced over the past few decades. In the, and I haven't yet figured out the right language to, to, to describe this. But in previous recessions, it's been, oh, my God, when are things going to improve? If the outlook for New Zealand is really, really bad, I'm out of here. And we all talk about brain drain of our, of our kids leaving the country because of all the horrors of the 1970s, the restructuring of the 1980s, and the continuing restructuring uncertainty of the 1990s um, as, as well. Um, there is zero element of that this time around. No one is saying to me, mate, this place is stuffed. I'm out of here. We're saying the opposite. We are saying the rest of the world looks stuffed. I'm not leaving here. People who maybe were going to do an OE, they're, they're sort of canning that, quite frankly. And I, I think it's reasonable to expect that over the medium term, we will see not only more Kiwis staying here, but more coming back from overseas as well. Now, that becomes relevant because when you're talking about the price of many things that you're not eating the next day, like fish and chips, of, of an asset, a share, an equity, etc., it's expectations that matter. And if we're looking at an environment where we expect the interest rates remain low for a long period of time, and we expect the net migration numbers will eventually improve, then people are going to look through to that eventually means the prices will recover again. I'll hold on as best I can. And banks, uh, they don't like making mortgagee sales. I think they'll do everything they can to assist people um, through this uh, uh, period uh, of, of time. And the evidence around the world, of course, now compared with in the past, and I was reading a report on this out of Australia recently, is that banks do work far more closely with business borrowers or home borrowers in difficulty than was ever the case, you know, heading into or just after the GFC. But yeah, we've got to acknowledge these are still early days and it's in three to six months time, we'll get far better information on what the transactions are really doing out there. No, I agree. And especially on that migration position, we've actually been doing a bit of digging in the last week or so on this. And even in Q1 this year, the net flow of Kiwis was positive for the first time in 20 years. And that was in Q1 this year before all this happened. And if anything, obviously that's going to increase. And when you see reports of up to 1 million Kiwis overseas, not suggesting for any second they're all going to come rushing home just because of this going on, some of them are very secure in their jobs. But if you see a little bit of an increase, and you know, usually we lose up to 20,000 per year, Kiwis, per, you know, then if that starts to get into the positives, that will have a strong influence on the overall net migration position, even taking out the foreign side of it. So, you know, and even longer term, we still might be attractive to foreign migrants because if we get under control better than many other countries, you know, they might have to put up with a quarantine for two weeks, but where else would you want to live? So, um, you know, I think that, that that's a really good point in terms of, you know, those migration figures, which everyone's saying will go to net zero. 
Um, I'm not quite so sure that's true. And of course, if we do have New Zealanders coming home, staying home, it's a level of demand for property, whether it's rentals or um, or owner-occupied themselves. So yeah, really good call out that one. Yeah, no, most definitely. In fact, most people don't realise, I mentioned this to someone earlier today and she went, huh? And that is that over the past uh, year, pretty much the annual net migration flow has been sitting at about 45,000. It jumped up, to, and you would have seen this, I see you're nodding there, Nick, and it jumped up to 65,000 for the most recent numbers up to February because we Kiwis didn't leave. Uh, I don't know, the, and I don't think that we saw the writing on the wall for the virus or anything. It's something new that had been building up over the past few months leading into, into this event. Um, and, and I've been talking for the past five years about, you know, when's the last time you heard anybody use the, the words brain drain? We, we don't talk that way any longer. And with technology allowing us to work remotely, obviously to a fantastic degree now, that means I think we're going to see, at a minimum, a phenomenon I've already observed of Kiwis who've been overseas, come to New Zealand, but they've still got the UK job. Now, we're going to see more of that, quite frankly, because they're still going to be able to do the existing job they've got overseas uh, remotely, quite frankly, um, from New Zealand. So that's just another thing to think about for, for right. all of this. But not in the short term. For me, that's more a medium term thing. Yeah. yeah. No, fair enough. Totally agree. Um, before we move on from the banking stuff, I just want to touch on a few more things from Reserve Bank. You did mention the loan-to-value ratio restrictions obviously being temporarily removed. We did have the capital requirements shifted back by the Reserve Bank too. Um, you know, there's been a lot of stuff going on there. From the, from the LVR restrictions, what impact to the market do you see those having? You mentioned first home buyers, but not necessarily causing a flood, do you think? No, not, not a flood of them coming in. The first home buyers are obviously younger, and they are the ones who will be most heavily affected by, uh, by this crisis. Um, there's already research out of Australia showing that the people getting made unemployed, obviously it's, it's across the board, but they're predominantly below the age of 30, over the age of 70, concentrated in tourism locations and the centres of cities, your CBD areas, obviously your, your baristas and, and these sort of, sort of people. So that's one thing I think to note there. Other thing to note um, is that, of course, a lot of these people, they're frustrated buyers. They haven't been able to buy. We've had this debate for so long about, you know, young people, when are you going to get your foot on the property ladder? It's hard to do. And so there's still a big backlog of these people that are going to be looking to buy um, out there. But many of them are going to find they're not in a financially secure position to do that, maybe for another one to two years. Either they'll realise it um, or the parents they're partly relying on for a deposit will realise it and won't give them the extra deposit. I've already heard of that. Or it's simply going to be the banks as well. You know, banks, they do have useful information and they can sometimes give you the hard message you need to hear for your business um, and for your home buying as well. They have to undertake responsible lending. That's you know, what people need to remember here. If the bank has turned you down, then it's because they don't think it would be responsible to advance you that money because of the outlook they've got for your sector, your job, um, or, or whatever. But yeah, it is interesting that because there's such a queue of first-time buyers, they are still active out there in the market, hoping, not so much for discounts, they're hoping for availability. The investors, a bit similar, but a bit more bargain hunting on the, on the investor side. And of course, if they're not having to stump up with a 30% deposit, that, I think, has an interesting dynamic. It reinforces a movement of investors, of buyers, out of the regions, back to the cities. They've had an adventure for the past three and a half or so years when Auckland peaked out late 2016. They went to the regions. It was sort of a cyclical thing. Your, your money got a 30% deposit. Well, now, A, you don't need to do that. B, in the past, uh, since late 2016, 
average Auckland house prices have risen 7% versus 30% in the rest of the country, ex-Auckland. And so the degree to which Auckland sticks out is highly unaffordable. It's, it's not like it was before. So this crisis has been the signal for the ending of the regional adventure. Now it gets interesting because now the tide's going out and it's going to expose what I warned about from four years ago, where construction and optimism about population growth exceeds actual underlying realistic assessment of the numbers of people who will move to some of these places. I won't mention any, but yeah, that reality check is going to lead to some extra price weakness in the region. So even if we do get prices falling 9%, like the Reserve Bank cars say, which, which I, I still think is, is you know maybe 70% possibility, probability of that one, the bigger declines will not just be the tourism locations. It'll be the smaller towns generally uh, will exceed that as well. It's a really interesting point. Um, this week, actually, in our podcast on Monday, we had a question about will the fact that people can work from home more easily and businesses are more accepting of that, could that mean that more people move to the regions because you can continue to do your job even though you're working for a big business that is based in one of the big cities? I won't tell you what my answer was, but what's your take on that then? No, it's not going to happen for a number of reasons. Number one, Retailing in the centre of your town out there is going to look pretty bad. It's already challenged with some empty shops. More of the shops are going to be emptying out. Two, flying around New Zealand, getting connecting flights when you do need to visit the big smoke is going to become even worse and eventually much more expensive as well. Three, when we talk like that, I can do my current job from Ekatahuna, therefore I'll move to Ekatahuna. That's static analysis. But the world we live in today involves constant or maybe accelerating change. And when you think about, but what about in 12 months time? What I'm doing now and the way I do it, oh my goodness, it's vastly different from what I was doing nine months ago. So while I could do my job there in the regions now, I possibly cannot in the next 12 months. And because so much of the work we do is sort of collaborative with other people, new opportunities open up. And this is why we see big cities in the past sort of 10, 20 years turning into what we call agglomerations. Everybody wants to be around other people, to be exchanging ideas, seeing what's new, coming up with doing new ways of doing things. And if people shift out to the regions, it will retard that sort of process. Much as we all love Zoom, etc. That sort of thing works best when you've got existing, an existing business, existing strong relationships that don't tend to change. But because these things change so frequently, um, it will prevent any great movement of people to the regions. I do think um, there will be some population movement because some people will be able to, but I think it will feel, be fairly insignificant in the whole wash of things. So I don't know what you said about it, Nick, but that was my view. I think that's a much uh, stronger, but also more articulate answer than what we were giving. Um, <laughs> And I think you know our point was was along the similar lines. People still want to live in cities for other reasons, not just for you know lifestyle. Of course, going out to those regions, there's more happening in those cities, um, and also from a work perspective, you know it's, people are more accepting of Zoom meetings now because that's all you can do. But when yeah. there is the opportunity to meet in person, you get in a big room, meeting room with ten or twelve people, much easier, much more constructive than trying to have twelve different people on one Zoom meeting. So I do think we'll relatively quickly get back to that. Um, expectation rather than just going oh, I'll zoom you and you know 12 yeah. others it's just not going to happen so yeah I think pretty similar positions but you're pretty <laughs> more articulate at your your side of things um, before we move on actually there was one other thing from I think we were talking about before in terms of the ages of the people impacted and I, I saw very similar stats I think to what you were talking about in terms of what they were seeing in Australia with job losses I've been sort of on the search around New Zealand to try and see what data we can get it sounds like the government's been pretty slow at trying to get any data out there 
But I had some luck talking to the guys um, at Infometrics who had managed to get some data from MESD around the job seeker numbers. And I'm just looking at the figures now. You know, since February, um, there was a 61% increase in those people between 20 and 24 on the job seeker um, numbers, on the job seeker recipient numbers. And that's the greatest among all the different cohorts of, of ages. Um, next below that was 25 to 29, which was 58%. Yeah. And then you're into the 18, 19, and 30 to 34. So it is very much in those lower age brackets. And the reason I was so interested was because I was figuring out younger people generally won't own homes, which means it's less likely to flow through to people wanting to discount their property because these are renters, not owner-occupiers. And so that definitely means more pressure on the rental market as opposed to owner occupier which investors need to be wary of if there's going to be downward pressure on rents um, and you know less people maybe more vacancy people moving home with the parents whatever it is that's going to influence the investor market rather than the owner occupier one which is why i agree with the short term not likely to see those price discounts happen straight away anyway so nice to be able to pull a few very very recent figures out got them from brad olson this morning so we'll take Good that job. we'll move on then and um look i think as a really broad question, one of the things we're interested in is where do you sort of sit with the actual impact of supply and demand on the property market? So I suppose what I'm thinking here is, do you think the physical property supply demand really matters? Or is it more about that confidence, expectations, and perhaps most importantly, that availability of finance and credit from the banks? Yeah, I think it's the latter grouping of things. People often give excess importance to measures of shortages or these sort of things. And so you've got to, if, if you've got a concept of some sort of shortage, you've got to also have some sort of concept of, but what is it supposed to be like? And what I mean there is, what do you think for this city should be the average number of occupants per house? And I worked out some numbers a wee while back. I'll just reach over and... and grab them and see if I can flick to this page uh, uh, quickly enough. And I had a look at uh, Auckland's uh, occupation uh, uh, rate there. And yeah, what? Oh, there it goes. Um, and I worked it out for 200, sorry, 2018 versus 2001. And over that period of time, Auckland's average occupancy per house went from 2.94 to 3.15. Okay, so it went up. Um, now, what have I calculated there on the basis of if you wanted Auckland to go back to the occupancy of 2001, it needs another 37,000 houses. So you might say, oh, okay, that's its shortage because I think 2001 is where we should be. You know, it's a subjective view. Oh, hang on. But what if you think Auckland should be like the rest of the country now, which has an occupancy rate outside Auckland of 2.68? Oh, then Auckland needs 87,000 extra houses. Yeah, but what if we'd like it to look like Nelson, occupancy 2.55? Then you need 118,000. Okay, bollocks on that. What if we think Auckland should look like the west coast of the South Island with an occupancy rate of 2.38 people per house? Then Auckland would need 183,000 extra houses. What do you choose? It's a smorgasbord, basically. And the person will choose, I think, what suits their underlying view or bias on, you know, I guess what they'd like to see. And just because you have a, a perceived uh, uh, shortage there um, doesn't mean that uh, you, you necessarily get a particular price outcome uh, or anything. And in econo technical economic terms, there is no shortage. There is never a shortage in a market where the price can adjust to reflect changes in demand willingness versus supply willingness. So technically there's no shortage, but um, if you've got a view on what's optimal, then 
go for your life basically the numbers are there from stats new zealand you can you can work it out yeah i mean you're right it's so different across the country you know i think comparisons to christchurch are always quite interesting too with the market and where it's going there but for auckland like you say changing demographics people who are used to living in asia somewhere many more people in a house or you know island families who live multiple families in a house as well and if that demographic's changing dramatically uh, which at some periods of time it has been then yeah, you just can't account for that in any calculation of shortage and we've also steered clear of you know putting any actual number on it um, and I agree in terms of, you know, it probably relates more to, you know, credit availability and, um, and you know, how much are people earning and, and willing to borrow to begin the market too, which comes down to confidence as well. Yeah, here's another thing for you. Back in, I think it was October 2018, we had the revised regional subnational po population estimates from Stats New Zealand and they cut back their estimate for Auckland's population by, I think, 77,500. And so the implied shortage, whatever number you had, reduced by like 26,000 or something like that. Okay, so you think, oh, the shortage is less than we think. Yeah, and following October 2018, Auckland prices rose about 7%. So, you know, there's no direct relationship there. There, there is not. No, great, great clarity. I love that. All right, mate, we'll shift slightly and maybe um, do it a little more briefly, but just wanted to look at the broader economy for a little bit. And I suppose... What I'm interested in, there's been a lot of talk about how the crisis will impact the economy, sometimes for the better, through improved technologies and the like. Is there anything long-lasting that you think might come about because of all of this? Okay, the long-lasting, I think the changes in the workplace, so more people working from home two or three days a week and working working in an office, so definitely reduced demand for central office space, I think, in, in that regard. Um, I think the tourism industry may... I hope it never gets back to the size it was before because we have people cramming in and messing up the country and killing us on the roads and clogging up the tramping tracks. Um, when you're seeing these photos of people uh, queuing to go along the Tongariro crossing, you know, that's bad enough. And when you're seeing then the people queuing to get to the top of Mount Everest, that's another example of it. You know, it's too cold, they'll die up there while they're waiting. I think the whole thing just got a little bit too ballistic there. And I think one change will be that the contribution of international tourism to our economy may never get back to the 5.5%, uh, I think it was, um, previously. So I see that as a bit of a change. I think because we will see the banks reassess the riskiness of lending to retail, hospitality, tourism, aviation, it will lead to those sectors just generally being smaller than they were before. And of course, retailing, more online shopping. It's going to be a far greater challenge to the existing sort of storefront locations uh, than was the case. I do not see coming out of this at all an increased role for, say, the government in New Zealand um, interfering in our lives. In fact, it may well be the opposite because whatever plans any sort of lefty or centre-left government may have had for increasing their activities over the years, they've all been wiped out because they're having to spend their money right now to get us through this crisis. They're not going to have the fiscal headroom to be able to going on on some sort of spending um, adventures. So, yeah, no, I don't see that change coming out. I, I, I know people look at these crises and say, I think this will change everything. We're going to radically change what we're going to do. We're going to embrace blah, blah. No, we're not. We've already proven we will embrace five weeks worth of takeaways in one week. Uh, what was that? Two weeks ago. We want things to go back to the way they were. And I feel this personally. There's stuff I'll be wanting to get in the shops. I just would rather I could shop like I did before without having to register at the door or something like that. And that's going to make me not go shopping. 
quite frankly, I've got used to not shopping for seven weeks. And personally speaking, it's not good for the economy, but I'm not going to be going out shopping as much as I was before because the experience won't be like I want it to be. Obviously, your family hasn't embraced online shopping as much as mine then. We had to have packages arriving twice a day of stuff that we've, we've apparently bought. So, you know, we're trying our best to keep the economy going, seeing as I've still got my job. So, yeah, maybe you haven't embraced that as much as we have. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. What about for the real estate market then? Um, I know there's options to do virtual appraisals. Um, you know, are agents going to change too much? Do you see much happening for the real estate industry? I think a continuation of the trend we've already seen of generally declining sales as a proportion of the total housing stock. Uh, back in 2004, we had nationwide turnover, about 120,000. We went into the GFC at 108,000. We've gone into this with 75,000 turnover. I think, I think that's going to drop about 40% for the remainder of this year. That's my best guess on the sort of thing and then there'll be a recovery but i think that the long-term line in nominal terms will be down for a few years still um the trend going around it and as a proportion of the total housing stock partly because of the housing shortage i i, I guess people are going to hold on to their houses especially in a low interest rate environment what else are you going to do with your money um so i think that will be um a continuation of the trend maybe is more accurately what i'm saying there rather than something coming out specifically for the real estate agents from this crisis. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not sure in terms of how they work, how, how the things might no. change. Fair enough. And just for clarity, I should um, put in there because some of the numbers you referenced are slightly different to the numbers that we put out there. So I'm just going to clarify that yours are agent sales, whereas when we report sales figures, we're always reporting agent plus non-agent sales, just for the listener's benefit there. Yeah. Um, come on, we'll move on briefly. I think that... Um, you kind of touched on where you expect house prices to go, but I wondered if you just want to give us a summary of sort of where you do things, think, see things going for the rest of 2020 into next year. And then um, how is this for an option as well, that some markets may actually see prices still continue to grow this year? I'm thinking the likes of maybe even, you know, Wellington itself, because it's strongly supported by the government spending, of course. Um, yeah, what do you think about that? Yeah, if there's going to be any increase in prices still this year, it'll be... Wellington, Nelson, Christchurch, three places, basically. So in my survey of the real estate agents, you know, 236 replies are there. Overall, a net 27% of agents said it is a seller's, no, it's a buyer's market. <laughs> Get that around the right way, that the market is in favour of, of the buyers. Um, but in, I'm pretty sure it was Nelson and Wellington, it was still seen as a seller's market, listing shortages uh, and the, the underlying economic fundamentals there. And for Christchurch, I think it was only a net 2% saw it as a buyer's market, so a bit more marginal there. The insulating factor for Christchurch isn't the role of the, the government. You know, No public servants have lost their jobs out of, out of any of this. Um, so it's not that. Um, it's the fact that Christchurch just simply hasn't had the surge in prices over the past five years that just about every other place in the country has. So they're not looking highly priced. Um, yeah, so I, th I think that's a possibi possibility. So Christchurch, I'd be hard-pressed to think the prices will actually rise there, but I think Wellington is probably the best candidate. Having said that, it has done the bulk of its catch-up already with its traditional relationship with the national average. So I think a person has to be a bit careful about not taking too many of the happy pills talking about prices rising generally. I, it's not something I'm saying. I'd be talking more in terms of uh, better price support 
uh, it's more politically correct, I think, to talk that way than actual prices prices going up. You could look like a complete fool uh, going going too strongly on on that view. Uh, fair <laughs> enough. Yeah, I think we say more resilient is probably our yeah. way of getting around the wording. Yeah, uh, very good. All right, mate. Well, we're gonna get pretty close to wrapping up now. It's been an amazing chat. I do have a couple of standard questions we ask all our guests, and the first one is: Imagine you having a beer with Jacinda Ardern tonight the last night of lockdown level three, of course, what sort of messages would you be passing on to her? Yeah, I'd be saying, remember, you don't have a mandate from the New Zealand public to radically change either our economy or society. You've done a really good job um, in handling this crisis, uh, especially in contrast with some of the bulls ups we've seen overseas. It's just been appalling and, and remains so. But uh, the greatest risk for a politician or, or anyone is having had a success in something to then over extrapolate yourself and you overstretch and we already saw under the previous uh labor leader Helen clark eventually said, no we won't be told the size of shower heads in my showers for water control i don't want to be told the light bulbs that i use there um, we embrace personal freedom in new zealand i've actually got no doubt she's fully recognizant of that already she has downplayed you know talk about tax increases or radical restructuring i think both she and grant robertson are probably up to play with that sort of thing. So that, 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 that's what I'll be reinforcing to her. Oh, very good. I like that. All right, mate. Well, do you have any other thoughts and uh, maybe give a plug for how people can get in touch with you and obviously subscribe to your regular newsletter? Yeah, okay. First thing, just remember, recessions always end. Okay, I was, I, was, I was doing something for some young people the other day and saying, recessions always end. You think they're bad, obviously, when they are, when they're happening, but you always pop out the other side. We are the dominant or most influential species on this planet because we are the most successful at adapting to whatever comes along. So we will adapt and we will have more shocks down the, uh, down the track. I'm going to write an article somewhere in the next few weeks just trying to list all the ways our economy has been shocked in the past 40 years. They're happening all the blooming time. So don't think that we won't have something else for which you need to build up your equity, et cetera, over time. Um, so, yeah, my, my thoughts now, I'm sort of unleashed and free to write what, what I want. I'm, 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 my, my current weekly is getting a bit big, so I'll have a, uh, a wee look at that pretty soon um but if anybody wants to receive my stuff just go to tonyalexander.nz so w.tonyalexander.nz and i've got the subscribe button people can subscribe to the free publication there and like i say the numbers uh, on my list have uh, almost gone up five times over the past two and a half months so i guess i've been doing something right unless they're all fake we'll, f we'll find out eventually <laughs> i can tell you i'm one of those and it's definitely not fake so you know you're doing all right then uh, one one final final question. Then, do you have any Netflix or Lightbox recommendations? Do you watch any TV that you're watching at the moment? In honesty, I haven't got time for TV. Uh, when all of this started, I I was making chocolate caramel slice and all the and 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 I had a I had already got in a big supply of books to read. They're still sitting on the shelf there. I stopped the baking weeks ago. Um, I'm doing so much, I guess, uh, involving my my business during the day and the early evening. Um, I've hardly watched anything on Netflix uh, for a long time. In fact, even before all this happened, I stopped watching much of Netflix five or six months ago. Too much choice. I don't know what I'm supposed to watch. And so I signed back up to Sky Movies, for instance, because it's already gone through a sort of a selection process. So if I want to watch a movie, I, I go there. Oh, plus, in the countryside, we've got ADSL. It's only given us about three uh, MBPS uh, download. So Netflix can be a frustrating experience sometimes. Uh, but two months ago, I signed up to Farmside Wireless. It's great. We're on that 
at the moment, but you can't really run Netflix through it because it's going to churn through your allocation pretty darn, darn quickly. So, so there we go. If I want to vent out and watch TV, I watch fail videos on YouTube. That's what I love. I love it. Yeah, I like ridiculousness on uh, MTV. But that's why we do the recommendations so people listening can go, oh, what's he listening to? Let's listen to that. But uh, no, that's awesome. Thanks, mate. Oh, well, I do want to say, look, thanks very much for coming on. Really appreciate your time. Um, just to wrap up, please subscribe, rate, and review us to help spread the word. And uh, callogic.co.nz for all your insights on the market. As always, please get in touch with any of your thoughts or questions. I'll leave our contact details as well as Tony's in the show notes. Otherwise, thanks for listening, and we will speak to you all next week. Bye. Bye-bye.